welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. An article titled Oxycontin Goes Global, We're Only Just Getting Started, written by Harriet Ryan and published in the LA Times in 2016, began this way. Oxycontin is a dying business in America. With the nation in the grips of an opioid epidemic that has claimed more than 200,000 lives, the U.S. medical establishment is turning away from painkillers. Top health officials are discouraging primary care providers from prescribing them for chronic pain, saying there's no proof they work long-term and substantial evidence that they put patients at risk. Prescriptions for oxycodone have fallen nearly 40% since 2010, meaning billions in lost revenue for its Connecticut manufacturer, Purdue Pharma. So the company's owners, the Sackler family, are pursuing a new strategy, put the painkiller that set off the U.S. opioid crisis into medicine cabinets around the world. On May 22nd this year, Congresswoman Catherine Clark and Congressman Hal Rogers released a report titled Corrupting Influence, Purdue, and the World Health Organization. Now, that report exposed the dangerous opioid manufacturer's influence at the World Health Organization. So I'm joined today to talk about that report and what happened in its aftermath by Guardian reporter and best-selling author of American Overdose, Chris McGreal, and Daily Caller journalist, Evie Fordham. We begin by revisiting my discussion from two years ago with LA Times journalist Harriet Ryan, who introduces Purdue Pharma's strategy to go global through their international company, Mundi Pharma. This has been occurring um, kind of under the radar for the past five years, starting in 2011, which was the first year that sales of OxyContin dropped in the U.S. Um, the, the owners of the company, it's the family, the Sackler family. They own an international network of companies, and that international network started stepping up their expansion, especially into what they call emerging markets, which we would call the developing world. And they started opening offices, Brazil, Argentina, uh, Mexico, uh, really expanding in China, opening up in various countries across Asia, South Africa. And, you know, they've been pretty blunt about it, not when talking to us, but, you know, in, in talk, you know, in putting out press releases and, and speaking to people in the pharmaceutical industry, they're like, look, you know, the profit, profits are falling in, um, in the U.S. Um, they're stagnant in, in Canada and Europe, and we got to expand into other places. And so we're looking at these countries that have rising uh, middle classes that are expected to become big economic powerhouses like Russia and Brazil and China. So um, we found in our review of, you know, just what's public, what's out there, what they're saying publicly, 
that they are using some of the tactics that they used in the U.S. Um, that are very controversial. And, you know, one of those is downplaying the risk of addiction to patients from painkillers. So we found evidence of people who work for the company or are employed by the company, you know, telling the public, telling patients, telling, saying, look, if you, if you have legitimate pain, you don't have to worry about becoming addicted to your meds. We know in the U.S. that that is not true. So the CDC uh, has said that up to 24% of people that are prescribed painkillers long-term become addicted to their medications, and that it's it's not just the suggestion is that the only people who become addicted are people who maybe buy painkillers on the streets or something like that. And um, you know, our experience in the U.S. has shown that actually patients, people that who have legitimate pain and go to their doctors also become addicted to their medication. The issue with painkillers is if you're going to make a profit from it, if you're going to make a lot of money off of selling painkillers, you can't just sell them to people who are in hospice or um, have cancer HIV. That market is too small to make the kind of enormous profits we've seen in the U.S. What you need to do to make the billions that, we, that we've had here is that you have to have an, a market of chronic pain patients. Those people don't die. They're going to be your customers month after month after month, year after year after year. Uh, so those are the customers that um, are most profitable to the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and yet we have the leading authorities in the U.S. saying don't use opioids on those people or discouraging physicians from using opioids on chronic pain patients because of the risks of addiction and death. It's sort of a it's a problem. It's a problem for pharmaceutical companies as they try to go into these big markets. Um, and and I don't know. It's surprising. It is surprising to just blatantly state these things that experts in the U.S. would tell you are not true. So the L.A. Times article caught the eye of Congress, and Chris McReal talks about what happened next. The L.A. Times writes a piece about how Purdue Pharma and others are taking their playbook to uh, increase opioid sales, particularly OxyContin sales internationally. And suddenly that got the eye of, uh, of Congress. And so they drafted a letter over to the WHO. What happened next? Well, nothing. Um, so Catherine Clark and Hal Rogers, two uh, vocal uh, members of Congress um, who'd spoken up about the epidemic, wrote to the WHO in 2017 asking... Uh, uh, to caution the WHO, actually, uh, telling it, it it really ought to look at what had happened in the United States and learn those lessons uh, before it went ahead with these guidelines or, or continued with these guidelines. And the WHO just failed to respond to the letter. And the WHO has since said, oh, we did respond to the letter. But in fact, all it did was acknowledge receipt. It didn't address the issues in the letter. Um, and Clark and Rogers uh, said they found that uh, um, very worrying, and it prompted them to actually go and look closer at what was going on, and the answers that they found uh, were very deeply disturbing. Evie Fordham talks about the report released by Congresswoman Clark and Congressman Rogers on May 22nd. This report, um, it basically talks about how should pain be treated. It's coming from this body that's connected to the UN that people trust, and I mean, this is back in, I guess you said 2011. And so the 2019 report references back to it and says basically it was repeating these 
um, lies or unfounded claims that the opioid industry had been saying for a while. And all of a sudden they were popping up in these guidelines talking about um, lower percentages of substance abuse disorder that come out of opioid prescriptions than things that NIDA has found. Um, and so these congressmen are asking that it be rescinded because they're saying it's blindly amplifying the tactics of opioid companies, aka Purdue Pharma, who are in it to grow their to grow their market, essentially. In 2007, the World Health Organization began seeking input on the formulation of two important reports they would later publish. They collected input from a Delphi study. Now, that specific methodology that relies on a principle of reaching consensus, and I think that that's important, reaching consensus among surveyed participants. Eight of the 21 known organizations who the World Health Organization consulted with had financial relationships with the opioid industry. Right. Well, you were speaking about building consensus and the people coming to this consensus it was showing had ties to the opioid industry. And um, the congressional investigation you referenced um, that we got in, I think, May also even just talks about, you know, uh, influence money from Purdue Pharma to these organizations that claim to talk to, to advocate for patients, um, but the report kind of delves into how the viewpoints they took weren't necessarily going to be the truth or weren't even what the CDC was recommending. So this report definitely fed into the 2011 and 2012 guidelines for pain management that Representatives Clark and Rogers have demanded to be rescinded. Chris McGreal puts the corrupting influence report in perspective for me. Well, I suppose the roots uh, are back in you know, Purdue's originally uh, marketing strategy in the United States uh, from the mid-1990s onwards. But they absolutely uh, start then applying it uh, more globally and had their eye on the World Health Organization. Uh, what they wanted to do was to do essentially what they'd done in the U.S., uh, which was um, leverage the idea that there was a, a, an epidemic of untreated pain around the world and that uh, opioids, and as it would happen, Purdue Pharma's opioids, um, and that of its uh, of its uh, kind of international uh, subsidiary, uh, Mundi Pharma, which is also owned by the same family that owns Purdue, um, were the solution to this. Yeah, the Sackler family. The Sackler family, exactly. And... Um, uh, they they applied that same kind of uh, mindset, which was to minimize the dangers of uh, of these drugs, to play down the risk of addiction, uh, uh, to, to and to overstate their need, uh, not to diminish the fact that in many countries pain does go untreated, and uh, that's a serious problem for a lot of people. Um, but uh, Purdue uh, Mundi and Mundi Pharma were pushing the idea that opioids were the magic bullet in the way that they had in the United States. And they were able essentially to influence the WHO uh, through essentially the same uh, framework uh, using those experts and those organizations which were uh, promoted as independent voices, but which had in effect very close uh, ties to the opioid industry. Next, we get more insight from Evie Fordham on the reports. The opioid crisis had been something people had been watching for years, and it's something that will continue for years. 
And I think that kind of goes back to a term in the in the 2019 congressional report that said like opio opiophobia or a word like that. Um, essentially trying to trying to soothe prescribers, patients, policymakers, um, not to be afraid. And and there is some semblance to that, but the the numbers, like the numbers that NIDA has cited show that you know there is a risk. It should be managed. There are certain times when opioids should be subscribed, certain times when a doctor should be much more careful. So it was just very interesting to see language like that in WHO document. Next, Evie talks about the industry money connected to the report. They spent around a year tracing money and influence, I think, were the two categories they looked at. You know, why did this change? They want an explanation from the World Health Organization. And I think we did discuss it, but it's bipartisan politicians who are talking about this. So it is interesting to see people on both sides of the aisle are wanting to know what happened. Now I'm going to jump back a little ways. It's fascinating what their report has revealed and how deeply they've dug into this. They went all the way back to uh, Purdue's 1996 budget plan. And what they dug out of that was Purdue went on to state that their intention was to establish OxyContin as the opioid of choice in step two of the WHO analgesic ladder as the opioid to start with and stay with. Pretty damning, pretty damning in light of everything that has transpired since then, don't you think? It is so interesting. And I mean, I'm even looking at some numbers from an HHS report in May, just talking about how I think the the term they used was, here, let me look at it, um, up to $635 billion um, a year ago to treat pain and chronic pain. Um, And another way to word that is it's a billion dollar industry, multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. So it's super interesting to look at and trace the money and the influence like you were talking about. And so it is super interesting that this report, I mean, you can even look at it and they have graphics with arrows um, claiming, you know, this is where certain players who've even been on um, like defunct pain advocacy, who've been major players in defunct pain advocacy groups um, that were shown to have opioid money or influence underpinning them. They've continued to be kind of the major players who've spoken about how to treat pain, aka when is it okay to prescribe opioids and gotten certain language, certain ideas, numbers that you've talked about that people don't rely on anymore or at all um, into these guidelines. So that report uh, is a guideline called Ensuring Balance in National Policies on Controlled Substances. And there's a little bit of a clue in that title because the word balance is in, in there. And and actually, that, that strangely um, uh, worked its way through uh, all of these issues in the United States. When uh, concerns were raised in the United States about whether opioids were doing more harm than good, um, the industry very effectively uh, pushed the idea of a balanced approach, which essentially meant, in their words, that people who became addicted to the drugs, uh, it was their own fault and they shouldn't be allowed to deprive uh, genuine pain patients, as they were uh, characterized, of the much needed opioids. And essentially, 
they they pushed that same idea onto the WHO that there needed to be a balance, and the balance was between the risks and the benefits of opioids. Uh, but again, it wasn't really a genuine balance. It was all about keeping the door, or in this case, opening the door to prescribing. In 2012, the WHO issued another report, and once again, it mirrored much of the information that industry wanted that it to mirror, the positions that they wanted it to mirror. That's quite right. And a key part of that was actually a long discredited assertion um, that, quote, there is no need to fear accidental death or dependence from prescribed opioids. Now, that was untrue, uh, but that had been a key uh, element of pushing the pushing the um, opioids in the 1990s uh, into the early 2000s in the United States. And it was still alive and well and inserted into these guidelines by the WHO in 2011, 2012. The WHO had uh, been a proponent of a three-step model, a ladder for treating pain, where you gradually increase the dosage in three different steps, starting with non-opioids, leading to a second step, which would be a combination of non-opioid as well as a uh, low-strength opioid, And then finally, full-dose opioids. Later on, though, with the introduction in 2012 of the new pharmacologic treatment, uh, that changed, didn't it? It did. Essentially, they stripped out one of those uh, steps. And the end result was that the WHO was encouraging doctors uh, um, effectively to go straight to opioids and also to uh, ratchet up the dosages quite early on. Um, And so what had been a fairly cautionary approach um, and very much a step by step uh, move into uh, opioids for a patient and with a close watching uh, to see whether um, addiction was going to be an issue uh, became a much faster process. And actually, as it turns out, much more likely to make um, addiction possible. Chris and I spoke of the World Health Organization's surprise announcement last week. Only this week, the WHO has come out and said it's scrapping those guidelines. It's going to uh, reassess uh, how it uses um, specialists. Uh, Particularly, it's going to look more closely at conflicts of interest and ties to the drug industry. And it's going to get new recommendations and issue new guidelines. So it's clearly been shaken by that report, even though it publicly uh, hasn't still hasn't actually addressed the report itself. but that's had an impact. Uh, uh, Clark and Rogers are pleased to see that there has been that response. Um, and so uh, from their perspective, at the very least, uh, the report had the desired outcome. And they've made the commitment to reassess and issue a, a report at the end of the year this year. Yes. And I think what we would probably expect is that this report would be much more uh, cautionary in on issues of addiction. Um, and, and the WHO statement recognizes that. It it does say that uh, issues around addiction uh, and dependency and misuse of the drugs do need to be very seriously taken on board. And that's really, I think, a reflection more broadly of what's happening with, with, you know, other institutions like the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, They've all moved much closer to taking on board the dangers around these drugs. And so the WHO um, is finally following that lead, which perhaps is a little surprising, only to the extent that they are a global health organization and you might expect them to be rather at the forefront of it, but definitely not in this case. 
What advice would you have for the international community based upon everything that you've researched and all that you've learned there, Chris? I think, uh, firstly, ensure that whatever studies you're putting together and whatever advice you're getting, it's based on genuinely independent research. It's clear to me and has been for quite a long time, but has been reinforced by the trial that's now ongoing in Oklahoma of Johnson & Johnson, that the industry has enormous influence over um, over research. I mean, we've heard at that trial how uh, Johnson & Johnson, through its funding, manipulated uh, education for doctors. It had its fingerprints over the results of research and that it was heavily invested in supposedly independent professional organizations. Um, and all of them were were really being steered towards one outcome, which was to uh, increase demand for opioids. And I think the thing that the Clearly, the, the World Health Organization, but also you know health uh, authorities around the world need to look to is genuinely independent guidance on the fact that yeah there are there is definitely a role for opioids they they serve an important uh, uh, use particularly in dealing with um, chronic uh, in, in acute pain after operations and particularly for people who are dying or have very severe cancer. Um, but uh, they need to be treated with care. And the advice on how to do that needs to come from genuinely independent sources. The task force is quite an interesting um, uh, phenomenon. And actually, it's evidence of the continuing influence of the drug industry on these issues. Uh, When the CDC guidelines originally came out a couple of years ago, uh, the industry was very upset. And shortly before, when they were still in the works, um, the, the drug industry essentially got its favoured clients in Congress to put together um, legislation that I'm sure was probably written by the drug industry, which created a task force uh, through the Department of Health and Human Services to overlook, oversee the CDC guidelines. And then that task force was packed with people who had close ties to the industry, so much so that... uh, what uh, one senator, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, identified that of 15 people on the task force who are obliged to make public uh, their ties to the drug industry, 10 were or had directly taken money from companies like Purdue Pharma. And uh, that task force has recently come up with recommendations saying that there's no scientific basis for the CDC's uh, guidelines, which say that you should limit Uh, Doctors should limit prescribing of opioids uh, to three or five days and dosages should not be higher than 50 milligrams or 90 milligrams, depending on the circumstances. Um, But they've set specific time and dosage limits. uh, And the task force has said, well, there's no scientific evidence to back those up. Now, I spoke to Dr. Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, who says, firstly, there is scientific to back evidence to back them up. But he said, essentially, what the task force is trying to do on behalf of the industry is to keep open a prescribing regime, a really wide prescribing regime, which is based on no evidence whatsoever. There is no evidence that opioids are effective long term for the things that the industry claims. Um, and so essentially the CDC is being asked to prove that something doesn't work that hasn't been proved to work in the first place. Um, and so he's very uh, angry about this. He thinks that it's going to cost lives in the long run. And he sees that very much as the uh, 
uh, continuing influence of the drug industry and attempting to keep uh, prescribing of opioids in the United States much higher than the rest of the world. I think it's also a reflection of just how much uh, medicine is an industry in the United States, how how really policy is not being decided by the medical professionals, it's being decided by corporate interests. And I think perhaps those corporate interests have been on the back foot a bit recently, as there has been growing awareness of the epidemic, but they're certainly not retreating. On June 19th, Congresswoman Catherine Clark issued the following statement. We were encouraged by the World Health Organization's actions today and its acknowledgement that prescription opioids carry inherent risks, such as dependence, overdose, and death. But its claim that scientific evidence did not point to these risks at the time these guidelines were published is simply inaccurate, and the WHO needs to recognize this. As our report makes clear, It was the opioid industry, not scientific evidence, that drove the content of these publications. The WHO has stated that it now has guardrails in place to protect against this situation, but it must fully investigate the circumstances that led to the publication of their dangerous opioid prescribing recommendations and make public those conclusions and the protections it'll put in place. Most importantly, the WHO must recommit to advocating only for evidence-based best practices that promote the health and safety of our global community. We conclude today's podcast with Harriet Ryan, journalist from the LA Times, who leaves us with something to think about. Pharmaceutical companies don't target destitute people. You know, they go to countries that have money for health care. And... Morphine could solve those horrible situations I was talking about, but someone has to produce it and distribute it. And since you can't really make a lot of money on it because it's so cheap, it's hard to line up a company to do that. The uh, UN group have actually called on drug companies to figure out a way to provide that morphine cheaply in, say, Africa the way those same companies have been, in a sense, shamed into providing HIV drugs in Africa. Um, I think you remember the the Clinton, uh, during the Clinton administration and his work afterwards, they and uh, President Bush, they, they convinced a bunch of um, pharmaceutical companies to provide um, these expensive HIV drugs in um, Africa at, at an affordable cost for people there. And it's made a huge difference. UN groups have said to the pharmaceutical industry, why don't you do the same thing with morphine? It's desperately needed there. Um, nobody's going in because these countries are so poor. You guys should do it. And so far, they haven't had any takers. It's an interesting issue because these people are at the end of their life. I mean, we're talking about elderly people dying of cancer. Um, it's, it's different, <laughs> like, just to reduce it to the simplest and kind of disturbing analysis, those people are, are not going to contribute anymore to their community. The way, like, you know, um, if you eradicate malaria, that's going to allow a lot of children to live and and to grow up and to be contributing members of their society and build those countries up into stronger countries. People who are in their last weeks or months of life, they have very little to contribute to their society. Helping them is just helping them because it's the right thing to do. There's no cost-benefit analysis to it. You just have to do it because it's the right thing to do. And it's been hard to find organizations with lots and lots of resources who want to do that. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources, 
Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. To stay up to date on the latest Cover 2 podcasts and community events, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's Cover, the numeral 2, and Resources. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.